Open your Bibles to Psalm 25. My name's Lloyd Shadrach, one of the teaching pastors here. I know it's summer and we've had a few guest teachers come in. But if you're, uh, you're visiting, we've got two teaching pastors, myself and Rob Sweet. And uh, so you'll see Rob and I rotating back and forth between our Brentwood congregation and our Franklin congregation. We do three services on Sunday in Brentwood. We do these two worship services here on Sunday at our Franklin congregation. Uh, I'm so grateful uh, that um, Brian mentioned the song, and uh, let's, let's pay attention to that, 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 that God has so gifted some in our body to write some songs, and what they just sang, uh, we now are going to study, and then before we leave this morning, we're actually going to come back to that song, and we'll have the opportunity to sing it ourselves in response to his word. Uh, Psalm 25, uh, Rob began uh, three weeks ago in this series in Psalms during the summer with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is, is a beautiful psalm, and it really sets up the whole uh, the book of Psalms in, in this way. It presents two paths. There's the path of the righteous, and there's the path of the wicked. And Psalm 1 invites us to choose the path of the righteous because it leads to life, not the path of the foolish or the wicked because it leads to death. And then you pick up today, we pick up today, Psalm 25, and there is a, a relationship between the two Psalms. Psalm 25, what we're going to study, is for the person who has chosen the path of the righteous. That's what this Psalm is for. It's for the one who says, I, I want to choose to follow the Lord. And it's for the person who chooses this path, and after spending some time on the path, discover it's a more difficult path than I thought when I chose it. And, and I'll say for me personally, I think it's why I'm drawn to the psalm. Um, I've said to you before that when I came to faith in Christ, I was 18 when I came to faith in Christ and didn't grow up in a Christian home, but when the gospel made sense to me uh, that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, he was buried. He rose again three days later, and he did it for me. And that to believe that Jesus did that for me was to be saved, to have my sins forgiven, to be clothed in his righteousness. When I believed that, I, in God's grace, he opened my eyes to the path of the righteous. Now, I thought in my naivete that this was the answer to all my problems in life. And in one sense, it's the answer to the greatest problem in life, our separation from God. But y'all, you know, again, it's naive, but it took me a while to realize this is hard, that uh, there's these thorns on this. I thought the thorns were all on that path, not on this path. And you find choosing the path of the righteous can be, and quite frankly, I believe is, it is more difficult in life than choosing this other one. It truly can be, and it truly will be. Uh, P.C. Craigie writes this. I was reading in a commentary, and I think he says it better than I am saying it. Quote, the prayer of Psalm 25 complements the wisdom of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 establishes two ways, that of the righteous and that of the wicked. But taken alone, Psalm 1 could be misleading. It might be taken to imply that the essence of life was simply choosing the right road. Once the choice has been made, all would be well. But Psalm 25 is the prayer of a person 
who is walking the road of the righteous. But the road is not an easy one. It is lined with enemies who would like nothing better than to put the walker to shame. And the traveler on this road is also plagued with internal doubts, end quote. And I might add this, to choose the path of the righteous, we can be misled because it is a path. But as we'll see the psalmist describe it, there are paths, plural, <laughs> that we choose once on this path. And so the, the walk, our faith, walk of faith with God is not like an escalator. You know, you get on the bottom and you get to the top. It's honestly more like uh, jumping on a subway system where the first train you get on is probably not the train that's gonna get you where you're going. You gotta make these choices all along the way. Okay, now choose. Okay, now choose. Okay, now choose. So how does, how does God guide us on this path? Psalm 25. David writes a song that we're gonna listen to. And we're gonna study now, by way of context, Psalm 25 is an acrostic psalm, meaning as there are 22 verses, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and he uses a new letter each time. There's some exceptions in there, but they did it this way so that it was easily memorized. The problem is when you teach a psalm like this, it kind of jumps around everywhere. God is this, I need this. God, you do that, the wicked do this, and he's just everywhere. So it's hard to outline, it's hard to take notes, but as I think about this, who takes notes when they listen to a song? No, we listen to the song. I'm not saying you can't take notes, but it'll be harder to take notes. With that, we're gonna look at Psalm 25 like a song. The theme of the song is the heart that God guides. And I'm gonna take a few sections at a time and just unpack them together to say, what is the heart? Who is the person that God guides? With that, let's jump into our text today. Psalm 25, we'll start with verses one through three. David sings, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly, wantonly treacherous. Let's start here. The heart that God guides is the heart that's all in. That poker terminology for, you know, we're all, I'm all in. In other words, I think I can win this. I'm putting everything I got in. And if I lose, I lose everything. The, the, the picture here, Oh God, I lift my soul. You picture two hands going up as they would in their worship. And he lifts his hand and what's in the hands is to God. This is yours, God. I offer this to God. And notice here, he doesn't, you know, I offer you my job. Lord, I'm gonna offer you my kids. I'm gonna offer you my relationships. I'm gonna offer this part to you. You know, he says, I offer you my soul. David is offering all that he is. There's nothing left behind him that he's holding back that he's not offering and we would say he offers his whole heart, that immaterial part of us that is who we are, our heart. I give you my all. And the guidance of God is for those who, who, who are all in. You notice here he says, let me not be put to shame. We're gonna come back that to the, at the end. But he says, let me not be put to shame. I'm, I'm all in. I offer you everything. I'm gonna trust. I'm trusting you. 
Let me not be put to shame. I want to make a distinction here between guilt and shame, how we think about it today, and then we're going to set that aside and talk about shame, what he means. Shame. Shame is I'm a, I'm a mistake. Guilt, I made a mistake. You know, and guilt is a wonderful gift of the Lord. We make mistakes. We do wrong things. We feel guilty. I need to make that right. It's so good and healthy. Unhealthy would be shame to go from I made a mistake to I am a mistake. That's never true. Now, that's how we think about guilt or shame and guilt, okay, today. And it's helpful and it's necessary for spiritual and emotional health. Now, I want to set that down, though, because we need that understanding, but we also need to go a little further to say in this psalm, when he says, let me not be put to shame, he's not talking about guilt, shame, okay? So we set that down. What he's talking about is this idea of shame being trusting in something that doesn't come through. Uh, If I said, I built these stairs, I trust they'll hold me, and if I jump down on them and they collapse, I would be put to shame in front of you all. Does this make sense? You know, it's, it's, this is not strong enough a word. I would be embarrassed. But to be put to shame, having trusted in something stronger than that. And the psalmist, David, is saying, Lord, let me not get to the end of my life having trusted you in life and find you're not trustworthy. I put my confidence in you and you, I should have never put my confidence in you. I am now ashamed. I've been put to shame before my enemies. That My enemies are looking at me going, see, I told you so. Now with that, I wanna go just a shade underneath that and I wanna clarify something for us. Trusting God in this life that we live does not mean you will never be put to shame. I want to be careful that we hear this. I would suggest that you can trust God in this life, and uh, quite frankly, this world will, will put you to shame. I'll say it another way. Um, In this life, there will be times when you trust God for something And not only do you not get it, it's like you get the opposite of what you were trusting him for. Am I the only one that has experienced that? I don't think so. It's like the thing you would never have hoped or would want to happen happens, and it's not at all what you were trusting God for. Uh, Some of you, and and I hope all of us over time, we take stands, so to speak, for God. I'm going to stand for this because this is what the Bible says. This is what God says about this, and I'm going to take a stand for it. And we find in life, you take a stand for it, and rather than being vindicated, uh, you're, in a sense, put to shame because the world around you will put you to shame, i.e., you'll lose your job. You trusted God, and now you lost your job. You lost a friend, whatever it may be. In this life, there will be times that your trust in God, I'm trying to say, will not be vindicated. In the moment that David wrote this, in the time, we believe, Bible scholars believe, it's the time when he was running from his son Absalom. That's a problem. You're running from your son. 
So Absalom turned the whole kingdom against him. Absalom is coming after David to kill David. David is running from Jerusalem to try and get out of there before his own son kills him because his own son takes the kingdom from him. If you took that snapshot of David's life and said, wow, so this is what it means to trust God. You lose your kingdom and your son wants to kill you. I don't think that's very good. <laughs> you know. So see, in that moment, would you say David was put to shame in a sense? Yes. And so I want us to be careful and I want us to understand that if we choose a righteous path, choose to trust Christ, then we must take the long view on this. I said earlier that David was saying in this psalm, don't let me get to the end of my life and look back and go, I, did, I shouldn't have trusted you because you're not trustworthy God. Key phrase in there is end of my life. So you see, when he's talking about you will not be put to shame, I'm trying to help us understand that that means in the end, when it really matters, when your life on this planet is over and you step into eternity or with or without God, you will not be put to shame having trusted in God. Is this sort of making sense for us? See, it's that, it's the, you know, the, uh, don't anybody yell it out right now because I don't want to know, but you know, World Cup's going on. Would you rather the U.S. women be up by one goal for the, uh, 89 minutes or to be up by one goal when the final whistle blows. I want to be up when the final whistle blows, right? Do you want to win the battle? You want to win the war. Do you want to be right? Okay, do you want the world to say, you're, oh, that was, you, you did the right thing. You, you, your choices reflect you know, that that was right. Do you want to be right for 60, 70, 80, 90 years? Or do you want to be right in the end forever? I want to be right forever. We're wired to be right and want to be right forever. And when we trust God, we will not be ashamed. In the end. In the end. Well, he continues on. Let's stay with the song. Verses four to seven. He sings, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David is here stacking uh, Word upon word at the beginning, make me, teach me. Like, like, make me know your way. Teach me your way. Make me know your way. And he's emphasizing that to remind us that the guidance of God is for those who really want it. I really want to know your way, oh God. My kids all went through Williamson County Schools. Our last one, our third, just graduated from Franklin High. And, you know, I watch my kids go through school. Lisa and I have been at teacher conference meetings. And then I know what's in those classrooms. You know, I've seen my kids, you know, I know my kids have gone to these schools where, honestly, they've got wonderful facilities, got technology, they've got teachers with master's degrees, they've got curriculum, they have boards to write, they have everything they need to learn. Uh, some of you have been in places like this. I think of uh, classrooms I've been in in South Sudan, schools that we have a church have partnered with our partners there to help start elementary schools and beyond. And 
I've been in those classrooms and there's no roof on, you know, the roof had blown off. Uh, there's no desk, really. They sit on these benches. There's, there's no chalkboard. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, there's black paint on a you know, concrete wall or a board with black paint on it. And there's one piece of chalk that they share to write things down. And, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm using my kids as an example because I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but I want to say this. My kids went to school because they had to. You know, at any moment, had I said, you don't have to go to school anymore, they wouldn't have gone, you know? I mean, it's just crazy. These kids in Sudan are there because they want to learn. They want to be there. And it's a, it's a picture for me of, of this heart, this attitude of the psalmist when David says, Lord, make me know your, I want to know your way. And I don't think it would be inappropriate for me to say this. If the guidance of God is optional. You know, it's just optional for us. I, I, I wonder, I don't know that you will get the guidance of God. You could take it or leave it. I'm not sure. I don't really want it. I'm, I'm just doing this because it said to do this. I don't, I don't know that you get the guidance of God, but I'll tell you this, and I do believe this. If the guidance of God in your life is as essential as the air you breathe, you will never be without it. You may feel like it's not there, but I'm telling you, if, it's as, if you want it like the air you breathe, you will never be without the guidance of God. Now, something interesting happens in the psalm is if we kind of peel it back a little, he wants God's guidance. And right at that moment that he really wants it, something comes to his mind. The sins of his youth. Now, think about this. This has happened in life. You turn a corner, I want God's direction in my life. And next thing you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, three great enemies of our soul, it kind of brings up this thought. How, how do you want, what do you mean you want God's guidance when you did this as a boy, when you did this as a girl, when you just did this yesterday? It, it, it brings up the sins of our youth and our, our foibles and our fallenness, casting doubts. Ah, why would God lead me? And what we need to do is to do what David did. And he cast himself, you all, on the mercy and the steadfast love of God. You'll notice in the psalm, he mentions at least twice, the steadfast love of God, the steadfast love of God. It's that Hebrew word hesed. It's covenant faithfulness of God. God made promises that he would forgive his people, his children. And David simply threw himself on the Hesed of God, that God is a covenant-keeping God. David had been sacrificing animals a long time as the nation sacrificed animals to atone for, to cover their sins. It didn't take away their sins, but it covered it for a year, covered it for a year, covered it. And he threw himself, when his thoughts of guilt came, he threw himself on the steadfast love of God. Now, what do we get to do that David didn't, in a sense? If this is the cross in a timeline, David lived on this side of the cross. He threw himself on the promises of God. You and I live on this side of the cross. And so you and I get to look back at the historical reality that Jesus Christ, the son of God, lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserved on that cross, was buried and rose again. And at the cross, that's where we throw ourselves. That is the mark of the Hesed of God, his steadfast covenant faithfulness. So when we do get to that point, God, teach me your way. I want to know your way. Oh my gosh, he's not going to lead me. I am such a mm, 
No, I am so forgiven in the blood of Jesus shed for me. And we lock down on the reality and the steadfast love of God in the cross of Christ. The song goes on, verses 8 to 14. He sings, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what's right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord, that's a beautiful word, the counsel of the Lord, the intimacy of the Lord, the, the closeness of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. David uh, takes three phrases here to describe the person God leads, God guides, the sinner, the humble, the one who fears the Lord. And we're reminded again, think about this. He doesn't say, God guides the righteous. Now, God does guide the righteous, but David's reminded us here, God guides the sinner. Thank God. And so, who's, what's the heart God guides? It's the heart that says, I sin. I've sinned, I sin, and I'm gonna sin because I'm a sinner, but I am forgiven in Christ. You see, sin loses its power when we confess it, when we admit it. I'm a sinner, and God guides us. God guides the sinner. God guides the humble. Think about how these all go together, these three things. God, I am, I've blown it, and I don't even deserve to be led, but you lead me because I'm in Christ and his forgiveness. The humble, I need help. I am dependent upon you. I don't know which way to go. We don't come to God, God guide me because I know where I'm going. God guide me because I don't. The sinner, the humble, and the one who fears God. And that connects as well. Who is the one who fears God? When I was in college, I heard this, and it's never escaped me. You know, I forget more than I remember. But I remember this statement about the fear of God. It is the wholesome dread of excuse me, of displeasing God. And as I've reflected on that over the years, and even as I was looking at it for this passage, I thought, you know, I think I might shorten that to this. The fear of God is the wholesome dread of God. And you go, ah, oh, let's pick a better word than dread. And I go, I don't, I don't think so. You know, it's, that it's the wholesome dread and you can't separate the two. Don't separate the two. When you think wholesome, you know, you think, Good, whole, full, right, true, absolutely. It's the good, whole, full, right, true dread of God. You think of dread, you go, well, I only dread things that are greater than me. I only dread things that are beyond, mysteriously above and beyond. And you and I can take the wholesome dread of God and connect it to this. He loves me unconditionally. He loves me unconditionally. My two girls, um, they're 20 and 18 now, our two girls, Lisa and I, and when they were little, they were terrified of storms. And some of you have the little ones now. And of course, you know, in these 
summer, we're in the summer cycle right now. A lot of times you go to bed at night, everything's fine. And then sometime in the middle of the night, the whole house lights up like strobes have hit the whole house. You know, just this flat, just brilliant flash. You kind of woke up. Maybe two seconds later, boom, you know, it hits. And, and, and no exaggeration, the whole house kind of vibrates. You know, you just, and then, you know, kids are in bed with you, you know, which is awesome. I look back on it now, I miss it. But when it was happening, it's kind of like I'm trying to sleep and, you know, whatever. But I say that to say they were terrified of this storm. And, and I want you to think with me, let's think logically about this for a moment. Would you rather your kids not be afraid of storms? Would you rather them treat lightning like lollipops? Would you, would you like them to think of tornadoes like they're, they're nothing? You know, that tornadoes don't hurt you. No, no, I want my kids to be afraid, rightfully afraid, have a wholesome dread of storms. Get to safety. Don't stand outside. That's not smart. I want you to transfer that to the fear of God. See, we go to the fear of God, we recognize we fear a God, don't ever, don't ever leave this, who loves us unconditionally and has demonstrated that on the cross. But you all, this is a God who has revealed himself to us in his in the Bible, but do you think we know everything there is to know about God? Not even close. But we do know that it says, God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We do know that the Bible says that God makes the lightning and the storm, and he turns it to the north, south, east, or west, that it may accomplish whatever concerns him. This is the God with whom we have to deal with who loves us unconditionally and there ought to rise within us a wholesome dread respect awe of God and this is the one God leads the sinner I sin the humble I need help the one who fears God Verses 15 to 19, he continues to sing, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses, plural. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. David is on the path of the righteous and it is trouble, capital T, enemies to get him, affliction, distresses. I already said, we believe historically, concretely, it's a time when he was running for his life from his own son who had betrayed him, turned the people against him, and was now taking the kingdom from him. And literally, he's running to save his life out of Jerusalem up into the mountains because Absalom's coming. And he says, my feet are in a net. You know, this is such a visual for them. They would immediately, you know, they'd immediately go, yeah, in the, in the net, that you're, you're tripping up. You're trying to run, but your feet just stay tangled up in the net. 
But he says, my eyes are on you. And it's a reminder to us that in our troubles, yes, our feet are caught up in the net. But we don't deliver ourselves from the net by stopping and working on the net. We're delivered because our eyes are on the Lord. I'm going to trust you, God, to deliver me from the net or to allow me to move fast enough with this net tangling me up to preserve my life. My eyes are on the Lord. It's a reminder to us when trouble hits, where does our attention go? To the trouble. I'm not saying we don't address trouble and resolve things, but is our, is our attention more there or on the Lord. I said earlier that God leads those who are all in. Who God, I need it. And, and, and he leads those who want it. God, I, I, God, I got, will you make me want your will even more because I want it now and I need your way. You know, he makes this. I want you to think about this. When in our lives do we get desperate enough to cry out with that level of intensity, God, show me your way. When in life does that happen? You tell me. When you win the lottery, hardly. When life's trouble, when it's hard, when there's difficulty. And may I simply say, we're just, you know, it's all one book. And James is one of the letters. And James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, troubles. And we're reminded once again that our great sovereign God takes even our troubles and uses them as means of grace to show us himself that he's trustworthy in all things. David finishes the song, verse 20. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. Why? For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me because I wait for you. And then he expands the song to the nation. That's to the, to, to the, the whole. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Like a brilliant songwriter, uh, David has now taken us full circle, hasn't he? Don't forget how the song began. God, don't let me be ashamed for trusting in you. Notice how the song ends. Don't let me be ashamed because I'm trusting in you. We've mentioned at least these things. God guides those who are all in, who are all in to the very end. You know, it's, it's Lord, I'm trusting you in the end. I'll be vindicated because you are trustworthy. He leads those who want it, really want it, he leads the sinner, the humble, the one who fears God. And here we find a last trait. And I think, quite frankly, maybe the, the umbrella trait to the whole, because he's mentioned it before. I've just saved it for the back end. He leads the one who waits for him. He's already said it three times. Verse 3, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Verse 5, uh, for you I wait all the day long. Now verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. God leads the one who wait, who waits upon him. 
Just a few things about this thought of waiting. Waiting reminds us we're not in control. You won't make it through this day. And you're going to have to wait. And I want you to, when, you, when, when it hits, I want you to go, I'm not in control. <laughs> you know, it, I am not in control of this thing, this world, this life, my life, this person. Uh, waiting is an act of submission. Think about that. Uh, you, you can't, so you have to wait. So you're submitting to say there's something greater than me that's going to have to resolve this, fix this, move this, etc. Waiting is an act of submission, an act of faith. And then lastly, uh, uh, a word to us as those who are seeking to choose the path of the Lord. Um, waiting in our culture and world and time is a sign of weakness. Be prepared for that. Uh, you can't read a self-help business book, a leadership book that's not going to exhort you to speed, speed, speed. <laughs> and, uh, and so you come along and you find yourself waiting and not being upset about it, waiting. And it'll be seen as a sign of weakness. But I want to say to you, based on the psalm and the entire scripture itself, waiting is a sign of strength. Waiting is a sign of strength. When we wait and we trust a God who is in control. I want to ask the worship team to join me again because we will respond corporately. That's uh, one of the things we get to do when we're together like this. And that's why we want to do things like this. We'll do a reading in a moment, a responsive reading that will invite us to ponder even deeper this psalm. And then we're going to go back to the song that they sang. And we're going to get to sing a part of it reinforcing what the psalm says. But I, I thought about this, and this was just kind of as I'm in this passage and, and, and studying it, uh, I want you to think with me for, uh, for a moment about a couple things that I think can be significant. And as I thought about this idea of waiting, and I thought, you know, when you think about this, let me think about it. I'm gonna ask you this question. Is waiting a part of the curse? In other words, is waiting part of the curse we get because of our fallenness and rebellion? This is not a trick question. Let me help you with the answer. Imagine Adam and Eve, creation, there is no sin was waiting a part of the original creation? That's not a trick question. But what would you say? Y'all, yeah, they, 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 you know, things grew. They didn't grow over, you know, they, things, they had to tend the garden. <laughs> so they had to wait. So I want you to think about that. So waiting is not a part of the curse, which means waiting is God-like. God waits. It's not that we fell and so God said, now, now I'm going to put some speed bumps in your life. You're going to get so frustrated. No. Waiting was part of the garden. Let me ask you this. Will we have to wait in heaven? Think about it. 
It's not a trick question either. I want you to think, you know, heaven, don't think of heaven as, you know, heaven's, heaven's very much like life on this earth. We'll be working, creating, dreaming, seeing, relating, engaging. It'll be beyond our wildest expectations, but will we wait? Let the Bible teach us here. If the original creation we had to wait and God's gonna bring us to a greater expression of the original creation, men and women, we will wait in heaven. So waiting is not something to try and get rid of in your life. Now, think about this, though. When we wait in our fallenness, we run into things and we get frustrated and we're angry that we gotta wait because I want it and I want it now, okay? That's kind of how we define waiting now. But listen to this. In, our, in heaven, in our forever with God, oh, we'll wait. But it won't be defined as frustrating it will be defined, I really believe, as divine anticipation. It, it, our waiting will be as sweet and it will make even sweeter that which we wait for, whatever it may be, as eternity unfolds. How rich will our waiting be? God's inviting some of us now to trust him in the waiting. Waiting. 